morning, everyone. Um, today, we're going to be looking at another of the just as sayings of Jesus, and they're the sayings that we've been looking at throughout this um, little series of talks that we've been going through. And our key text today is John chapter 13, verse 34. Um, and as we've noted previously, with each of these sayings, Jesus is making a comparison between two things in order to teach us something important. And our, our, our subject today is love. So here's the key verse, it's two verses actually, um, verse 34 and 35. Um, I'm going to include verse 35 um, as one of the key verses because it really does highlight that this love that we're talking about is not just the love that we see in the world around us. And I say just in a, in a, a careful way because so often in the world I am so inspired and amazed by the quality of love that people show to one another in all circumstances of life. People who've never known um, the love of God, never known uh, anything about the gospel, yet love is out there um, in the most amazing way. But the love we're thinking about as Christians together is something different. So, the key verses. Um, Verse 34, a new command I give you, love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And that's the challenge, isn't it, to each of us. Regardless of how much we might think we already love each other as members of this little church community, the standard of love that God expects is even higher. We are to love one another in the same way, just as the Lord Jesus has loved us. Of course, we already know that, don't we? God's love is the pattern uh, for our love for one another. But the difficulty we might have is knowing how we actually put that into practice because the love of God is so vast, so immeasurable, so amazing, how do we even begin to emulate it? And I don't think it helps much, uh, I say this reverently, um, when Jesus explains his love in more human terms. I'm thinking of John chapter 15 where it says, greater love is no one than this, that one lay down their life for one's friends. I mean, how many of us, and be honest, how many of us would be willing to risk or give our, or give our life for someone else in the church? Um, admittedly, the Lord Jesus did say that is the greatest love that could ever be expressed in, in human terms. Um, but it is what Jesus did for us, isn't it? Um, in fact, as we were thinking earlier in our worship, he went beyond that. He gave his life even their friends. So if we are to love each other in the same way that Jesus loved us, and maybe God does expect us to be able to lay down our life for one another if the circumstances call for us. Well, whether or not um, he expects that of us, it is very clear, isn't it, that the standard of love, our love for one another, that God expects is very high indeed. 
And, as I, as I was saying, and the reason why I included the, the second verse in that reading, it's a love which is distinctive to our calling as Christians. And therefore, it is something which underpins our testimony, um, as we read in verse 35, by this love, everyone will, will know that you are my disciples, if you, if you love one another. But, as I said, the difficulty we might have is knowing how we actually put that into practice. And to help us with that, I think we have two examples in chapter 13 of John's Gospel where the Lord shows us love in action. He shows us the things that we can do in our day-to-day -day lives which would demonstrate that high standard of love, the love of the Lord Jesus that we are expected to emulate. The first one, first example, is the one we were thinking about last week um, when he washed his disciples' feet. Um, but I think the second example is even more radical than that, and that's what I'd like us to think about this morning. I'm going to try not to repeat anything that Steve said last week, but what I took, took away from our previous talk was the challenge that among my friends in the church community, um, I should be ready and willing and proactive to do the most humble acts of service. So who do we think of as our friends in the church? Um, is it the people with whom we have the most things in common? Is it the people we spend more time with? Um, is it the people who are on the same page as us in one way or another, like the same things, believe the same things, have the same priorities and outlook on life? Um, we shouldn't need to make distinctions like that, really, because surely in a church, everyone's um, best friends. And maybe that's true in our little church here in Manchester. But sadly, the testimony of Christianity down through the ages, in fact, right from the very beginning, the churches that we read about in the New Testament, that testimony has been blighted by the various conflicts and disputes and divisions that have arisen uh, between members of the church, people who should be friends with one another. And actually, despite the love that we have for each other here in, in, um, in this church, we're not immune, are we, from the, from the things which can cause relationships to break down. Uh, it's a risk in any church. It could be due to basic personality clashes, or specific offences, uh, things said or done in the heat of the moment or due to misunderstandings. It could be due to differences in opinion about priorities or about how things should be done or, or differences in the belief about doctrine or church practice or it could be other failings, people not being supportive, people not pulling their weight and so on and so on. So with all that in mind, I'd like to share the second example of love in action that I think we see in the upper room. And I think it's an example which shows the kind of love that we should try very hard to show, even when it's hard, even when relationships are breaking down. So I'm gonna read some more of the passage and see if you can see what I'm referring to. As I say, it's a, it's, it's a, it's, it's a lot less obvious than Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And the person I'd like us to focus on is Judas. Judas. So, 
chapter 13, I'm going to just read a couple of verses to start off with, verse 10. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. Down to verse 18. I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill the passage of scripture, he who shared my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stirred at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you're about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out. And it was night. So, one way that we could view the relationship between Jesus and Judas is that Judas was a necessary evil and Jesus just tolerated him throughout his public ministry because of his, the, the, the great and terrible thing that he was destined to do. As it says um, much earlier in John's Gospel, John chapter 6, Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. But here's another thought. I think Jesus always had a deep love for Judas. Despite knowing what Judas would do because of sin and the devil's prompting, as we read that in scripture, the things that caused Judas to do what he did, Jesus never stopped loving him. And I think that we see that love in the upper room, and we also get a brief glimpse of it in Gethsemane. So to be clear, the inevitability of Judas betraying Jesus was only in the foreknowledge of God. God didn't make Judas betray Jesus. It was a choice that Judas made. And I think we see the love of God, the love of Jesus, all the more in what Jesus did in trying to deter him from the terrible plan that was conceived in his mind. And if Jesus could love and show love to someone like Judas, knowing that he would ultimately betray him, then it shows us something of how we should continue to love one another, regardless of any strains that might come in our relationships. So let's see 
if there's any evidence for what I'm suggesting. That in the various conversations around the table, Jesus was reaching out to Judas in love. And despite knowing that, Jesus, that Judas would indeed betray him, he was actually trying to deter him nonetheless. Let's talk about the seating plan. Now this is mainly just to give a little bit of context, but based on what is known about the disciples and how they would have sat at the table, according to Jewish tradition, we can picture the Lord Jesus and his disciples around that low table. Uh, they're not sitting on chairs like some of the paintings of the Last Supper um, betray, but each of them is reclining, as I say, the table would be very low, and they would be reclining against it, leaning on their left arm, and leaving their right arm mostly to eat uh, and, and, and drink with. So John had to be immediately to the right of Jesus, which that allowed him to lean back slightly against the Lord, as we read in verses 23 to 25. Peter was near enough to John that his question about the betrayer wasn't heard by the other disciples. But he probably wasn't next to him because um, verse 24 says that he had to motion to John, get his attention, before he could ask John to, to ask Jesus. So it seems that Peter was probably sitting opposite John. And again, that would help explain why the disciples um, couldn't hear most of the conversation. It would help explain why they couldn't hear that. If actually, contrary to a lot of the paintings we see, we see Jesus right in the middle of the table, I think actually Jesus and John and Peter were towards the end of um, the table. So where was Judas? He had to be near enough for Jesus to dip in the piece of bread um, and pass it to Jesus, like we read in verse 26. And according to tradition, that was a normal thing for the host to do for the honoured guest who would sit immediately to the left of the host. So that's where I think Judas was. Judas on the left, John on the right, Peter opposite, towards the end of the table, maybe right at the end of the table. We can't be sure that Jesus gave Judas that place, but it seems unlikely that Judas would take that place for himself, given what he was planning to do. You could just imagine Judas wanting to sit as far away from Jesus um, that night. Um, so if Jesus did give Judas the position of honour at the table, I think that would have been an extraordinary gesture of friendship. If you or I knew that someone was about to do something really horrible um, to us, we wouldn't even have invited them to the supper, would we? <laughs> Let alone give them the position of the, the honoured guest. But either way, we've got Jesus, as I say, at the table, Judas on his left, John on his right, Peter probably opposite. Possibly, Jesus giving Judas that position was in itself the first act of, or one of the acts of friendship that's part of my body of evidence. Well, let's see if there's any other evidence that Jesus was still reaching out to Judas, encouraging him to think again. 
Verse 10, we read that Jesus said to the disciples, you are clean though, not every one of you. Verse 11, Jesus said, it says, Jesus said this because he knew who was going to betray him. And then a little later in verse 18, it, he says, I am not referring to all of you. I know those who I've chosen, but this is to fulfill the passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. And it's thought that that's a quote from Psalm 41, which is about a man who betrayed David and then later hung himself. So that gives us um, a little insight, I think, if Psalm 41 is what's being quoted there, as it seems it is. Gives us, um, Psalm 41 gives us insights to how David felt about his betrayer. Um, and the Lord Jesus quoting the psalm, I think, gives us some insight into how Jesus felt about Judas. Actually, if I quote, if I just read you the whole verse from Psalm 41, you'll see what I mean. Because it, it's, it's more than just he who shared my bread has turned against me. Psalm 41 verse 9 says, even my close friends, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread has turned against me. So my point here is in each of these verses is simply Jesus is letting Judas know that he knew. If Judas thought he could do this thing without anyone knowing, he now knew that his cover was blown. Because surely he must have concluded that if Jesus knew a little, then he probably knew a lot. And Judas might also have realised that with that quote from Psalm 41, Jesus wasn't just talking about his feelings about Judas, his close friend who he trusted, who was about to betray him. He was also predicting the terrible consequences that would follow for Judas if he went through with this. It's like Jesus was saying, Judas, my close friend whom I trusted, do you really you really want to do this? And as we were thinking last week, the first indication that evening that Jesus knew something was when he was washing his disciples' feet, which of course included the feet of Judas. Was there ever a more poignant appeal to a person's conscience than for Judas to experience the love and humility of the Lord Jesus? washing his dusty feet and hearing those words aimed directly at him. You are not clean. It's like Jesus was saying to Judas, as he says to every sinner who hears the gospel, it's not too late. Repent and change direction. In verse 21, we read that after he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. I think possibly what Jesus has said so far might have been said to all the disciples because at the time it would have sounded quite cryptic to most of them. Um, all of them, of course, except Judas with his guilty conscience. But I think it's more likely that what he said next was said very quietly maybe even just whispered. Why do I say that? Because when Judas finally left the meal, most of the disciples had no idea 
that Jesus had identified Judas as the betrayer, as we see in verses 27 to 29. And I think that's another amazing um, evidence, evidence of the amazing love that Jesus had for Judas. Not only did he want to dissuade him from going through with it, he also didn't want to burn his bridge by exposing him to the other disciples. And as I've already suggested, I do think Jesus asked Judas to sit next to him, probably not because it was the honoured position at the table, although, as I say, we can't rule that out as a profound act of friendship, but mainly, I think, it was so he could share these quiet words with him. Let's go back to verse 21. We read that Jesus was troubled in spirit. Jesus didn't say he was troubled, of course. That's what John records in his Gospel, because John... Looking back, thinking about that occasion, remembers how he could clearly see in the face and hear in the voice of the Lord Jesus. He could hear that raw emotion. The word translated as troubled there, I think, conveys just how Jesus felt about Judas. It's the same word used in John 11:33, talking about how Jesus was weeping at the graveside of Lazarus. It's the same verse used in John 12 and 27 as he contemplated his own crucifixion. And I think this just gives us another insight into the love that Jesus had for Judas. The same love I imagine that he has for all the lost souls who he knows will never accept the gospel. On the eve of the cross, just a few hours before he was going out to be crucified, he was in deep anguish, not for himself, but for someone else. Even though he knew that person was about to betray him and hand him over to his enemies. If you've ever thought, and I'm speaking to anyone who might be listening to this recording, if you've ever thought that Jesus surely couldn't love someone like you because of the things that you've, because of the things that you've done or the, the, the type of person that you are. Look at Judas and think again. So what happened next? John leans back against Jesus, asks him who's going to betray him and Jesus tells him the sign, uh, the one who he's about to give the dipped bread to and when he gave it to Jesus, Peter and John could have been in no doubt who the betrayer was. And uh, the other disciples, as we thought, they had no clue it was Judas. Um, because when Judas went out, they thought he was going to give some money to the poor or, or do whatever. They, they didn't connect what Jesus had said earlier. If they'd heard it about saying that someone was going to betray him, they just didn't say, oh, must be Judas. They were totally unaware that Judas might be the person. Did Judas hear what Jesus said to, to John? Not sure, probably not, um, because Jesus wasn't trying to confront uh, Judas, Judas at that time. He was using this act of friendship, um, giving Judas the bread um, as a sign to John, but it was a genuine act of friendship nonetheless. He, John, Jesus could have given a different sign to John. But dipping the bread and giving it to Judas 
as I say, the thing that would normally be done by the host um, to the honoured guest, I think, was a, a very genuine and lovely act of, of friendship. And maybe Judas thought, one last time, can I really betray this person who's shown nothing but love and friendship to me, who's not only seated me in the, in the position of the honoured guest, but he's treating me like the honoured guest. Can I still do it? Well, we know the answer to that. Um, but finally, we, um, there's one other occasion. I mentioned Gethsemane. We don't get this in John's Gospel. It's Matthew 26. Uh, we read that Judas um, asks a direct question. And he whispers it quietly, I think. Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. And Jesus replies, you have said so. So Judas goes out into the darkness, literally, spiritually, metaphorically. Um, and although Matthew records that Jesus, Jesus uh, called Judas his friend one last time, as I say, in Gethsemane, um, as Judas led the uh, soldiers um, in to arrest Jesus, um, Jesus calls him. Um, a friend but for Judas it was now it was now too late despite all the love that Jesus had shown Judas despite reaching out to him until the very end it still ended exactly where Jesus knew it would Judas rejected that love and this is the saddest part isn't it and, and, I, and I, I think it's the saddest part about the story of Judas but it's the saddest part about anyone who rejects the gospel because it's not just a rejection of an idea. It's not just a, a rejection of a set of beliefs or a way of life. It's a personal rejection of the Saviour. It's a rejection of his love, his amazing divine love. It's a rejection of a person. And we see that love elsewhere in the Bible in many, many places, don't we? But I just wanted to focus this morning on this one man. Judas, someone who let the Lord down in the most cruel and terrible way, and to look at how the love of the Lord Jesus seemed to be continued to be expressed to him right to the very end, even though he knew he was a lost cause, because that's the standard of love that we have before us, the standard of love expected of you and me when we read those words, when we hear the Lord's words, just as I have loved you so you must love one another. And it is a very high standard, isn't it? And the Lord knows that. Perhaps that's why when he washed his disciples' feet, he said he was only giving them an example to follow, rather than a command, because he knows that with a little prompting at times maybe, we're all willing to serve one another um, in that way, to help one another, to do things for one another, people that we regard as our friends. But when it comes to this love, this radical love that he wants us to emulate and to show to people that we might not regard as our friends, he doesn't just say, follow my example. He knows it's hard for us. He knows it's not our natural inclination to show love to people that we don't get on with. So he gives us more than an example. He says it's a command. He gives us a command, a new command I give you, he says. And although I think Judas is a very extreme example, nevertheless, 
I think it's clear that this love is something which does go beyond the affection that we have for our best friends, the people that we have affinity with, the people that we're most comfortable with. If we're to love in the same way as Jesus, then we should continue to show that same warm, friendly, hospitable and sacrificial love to those people that maybe we don't like all the time, regardless of personality clashes, differences of opinion or any of the other things that I mentioned before. And if we think that's a big ask, well maybe it is, depending on what lies behind the conflict or the irritation. But once again, if Jesus could love Judas, despite the terrible thing that he was going to do, and knowing that he would not be dissuaded, then we, all Christians, should be able to love one another, regardless of the things that sometimes affect our relationships. So that's all I want to say. I'm sorry I've gone a little bit over my time. I'm just going to leave you um, with uh, those two key verses again, leave you with the Lord's words. Um, John 13, verse 34 to 35, A new command I give you, love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you